I guess from a business and operational perspective, I'm really looking at how we can handle large volumes of incoming inquiries effectively, how we can get large volumes of people to view property effectively, how we can process large volumes of applications effectively, but not losing sight of the fact that there's a real personal aspect to this. So the last thing that 19 unsuccessful applicants want to get is a text message going too bad. So, you know, how can we have a better, more effective conversation with those people who aren't successful and potentially start moving them onto other properties that we might have? Um, and, you know, outside of all of that, how am I going to support my team members? You're listening to Elevate, the official podcast of Elite Agent for real estate industry sales professionals, property managers, and leaders. With thanks to our partner Connect Now, Elevate brings you the best tools, thinking, and strategies to elevate your results. To get access to all of Elite Agent's premium resources, including a detailed episode guide for this podcast, visit joineliteagent.com. And for more information about how Connect Now can make moving easier on your clients, visit connectnow.com.au. Here is your host, Samantha McLean. Hey, hey everyone, it's Sam here from Elite Agent. Between rising rental prices, the great resignation and a record low vacancy rate, property management is a real estate sector that's been in the headlines a lot in the recent months. Someone who's been through a few cycles and is here to unpack the implications of some of the things that we're seeing out there is well-known PM and strategy leader, Brock Fisher. So Brock, welcome back to the show. Hey, Sam. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure to chat. Well, we haven't chatted for a while, I think, because you didn't come to Elite Retreat. Uh, yep. And I'm still kind of carrying that trauma, actually. I look forward to it for so long and so to, to not get there, it was a real bummer. Yeah. So, how is the knee going? Uh, look, I would I would have to say not as good as I thought. So, I'm back to the physio tomorrow. I'm back riding my bike, and I just thought riding would fix everything, but it turns out no. You've got to do all the stuff your physio says. So, what are you saying? It's not like riding a bike. Uh, no, <laughs> physio, physio is not like riding a bike. That's been my lesson of 2022, unfortunately. <laughs> Yeah, there's been a lot of lessons in 2022 and I sort of, I can hardly believe that, you know, we're eight weeks from Christmas as as we speak. But 2022 has been a very eventful year when it comes to real estate. So firstly, you've become a regular contributor to Elite Agent and I never thought you'd say yes, but but here we are. <laughs> here I am. I didn't know I had that many things to say, but hey, when I started to make a list, I was like, yes, yes, I can. Yeah, absolutely. And you and I have had uh, a number of chats about you know, the state of the market and other things that are going on in the industry. So I thought it actually might be useful to have one of those chats while hitting the record button because, um, you know, there's a lot of insights that you've given me on the current market as it relates to property management and the property management profession. So I want to unpack some of those um, things that have been going on today as they relate to property management and sort of get some of your views and maybe get some advice for people, you know, on the front line that are feeling the pain of some of these trends. But first of all, I mean, as we speak, a few things are going on. So we've just had the federal budget handed down and they've, they've set a very lofty goal. I mean, a lot of the a lot of the issues we're facing are supply issues. So the federal government have set a lofty goal of a million new homes by the end of the decade. What do you think about that? Yeah, look, I'm I'm still working through the detail of that because what I'm not clear on is if that's in addition to what would have happened anyway or if they're just saying that's what will happen. So, you know, typically the industry builds around 180 to 190,000 homes a year anyway. And so, yeah, that's that's kind of the 
the main thing that I haven't got out of my reading so far is, is it in addition to the, to the normal events or is it, is it just basically making a budget promise out of what would have happened anyway? So I think the other concern I have around that is, you know, it's, I think it's the right approach to have a more collaborative um, solution and involve all levels of government and you know, potentially different forms of investment and so forth. But I guess the other point is, is encouraging institutional investment just going to shift who would have bought into property anyway to a different to a different kind of category or, or class of investors? So are we actually eating into that supply problem at all? Yeah, the devil's always in the detail with these things. But the rental market in 2022... We've seen vacancy rates tighten. We've seen prices go up. A lot of worrying trends in the homelessness area. I mean, we're not going to unpack all of those today, but have you ever seen anything like what it is at the moment? Uh, no. <laughs> I mean, that's the that's the short answer, but I've been in and around real estate for all of my working adult life, so that kind of dates back to the 90s. And, you know, you always see periods of markets tightening and then opening up again, but certainly in terms of the drasticness of the situation right now, no, there's, there's not been a time that I've seen um, that is as bad as it is now. And I guess the other frustration I have as an industry person is that this is kind of, this was a foreseeable problem that no one has done anything about for years until we get to the levels of crisis that we're in right now. And, you know, there's also no short road out of this like there's no there's no fixed by june 2023 type scenario here it's a it's a it's a long road out of the hole that we're in because it's actually taken a long a long time to actually get into this hole as well how did we get here it's a i mean it's a polarizing discussion because what i've found and you know i've been out kind of chatting to various political parties and, and industry groups on this one is that it seems in order to have a perspective on this issue you have to have a side and i don't like I don't have a side. I'm not pro-tenant. I'm not anti-tenant. I'm not pro-owner. I'm not anti-owner. What I recognize is the problem and, you know, the solution to that has a range of different aspects to it. But I like to talk about it holistically. And for instance, if you start having a conversation about the challenges that owners have had, you've met vigorously with also the counter-argument about the challenges tenants have had. Like, I get all that. Everyone is having a shit time, basically. You know, tenants are having a terrible time. Owners aren't having a great time. Property managers are having an awful time. Everyone is having a bad time at the moment. So you can't talk about um, not helping us get to a solution where you can't just have an objective discussion about the views and perspectives of one party without it being taken as, I guess, an insult um, to, to the, the party on the opposite end of that. So I kind of tell this in story form, basically, but the rental market, like, all markets are basically driven by supply and demand. So take any area that you know, whether it's a suburb, whether it's a street, whether it's a city, and that area will have what I would say a natural level of demand for, for rental property. When supply meets that demand, then you have a pretty neutral rental market where people can just kind of move around if they like. And, you know, maybe rents will go up a little bit if people improve the standards of property, but that's, I guess, what a normal rental market looks like. So when the natural level of demand in there isn't served, so, you know, for example, if 20 people are looking for a property and there's um, and there's 30 properties available, then what you, what you find in that scenario is rents tend to actually come down because vacant owners will reduce their price to be more attractive to the people looking. 
Uh, and then the reverse is true as well. If you've got 20 people looking for a property in a market, but there's only 10 available, then prices tend to go up because everyone wants to compete for what's available there. So underpinning all of the issues that we have right now is the general principles of market economics and supply and demand. And that's kind of how we got into this position. So, you know, if I think back to my time as a property manager, uh, you know, I was a property manager on the Gold Coast in 2010 and 2011, where tenants were operating in a market where if their rent rent came up for renewal, they could actually negotiate a decrease because there was so many properties available. So when you look through the, the Varsity Lakes and the Rabina suburb areas and, you know, further north up through Pacific Pines and Upper Coomera, there was tons of new houses being built, expansive housing estates where new properties were, were coming up available. And, you know, a tenant in Pacific Pines coming up for rent will go, all right, well, I'm paying 450 but I'll renew for 430 Otherwise, I'm just going to move across the road into that brand new home for, for 420 So what we're seeing now is the exact opposite of that scenario where over probably a seven-year period, um, there's been a, a range of factors impacting people choosing property as an investment class uh, and also taking the property to cash out, uh, taking the opportunity in the market to cash out a property. And that has impacted on the amount of properties available for people to live in. So basically what we've seen is as the population has grown, people have slowly done two things. One is sell out of their property investments and the other is choose different asset classes other than property to invest in. And so that has resulted in a massive gap. Um, we've got further impacts there as well. When you think about things like flooding and making those properties unlivable, uh, the challenges that you have trying to get any of those properties back and, and available to be lived in because there's drastic shortages of uh, raw materials and trades to do the work. So yeah, there's certainly been, a, I guess, a perfect storm of, of mitigating circumstances at the moment. I've never seen, certainly in my time in, in real estate, which might not be as long as you, but probably getting close, is the narrative around investors at the moment, because I've never yep. seen the amount of legislation change that has happened, you know, not just in one state, not just in Queensland, for example, but, you know, like I have noticed it here because I've been a tenant here for the last couple of years. But all around Australia, there's been changes in WA, there's been changes in Victoria, there's been changes in New South Wales. And there seems to have been like this growing narrative of, you know, the the big bad landlord um, and and the poor tenant. Or am I dreaming? Well, it depends on which side of the <laughs> of the discussion you ask. Um, look, there's been no doubt that over the past couple of years, there's been a range of additional protections put into tenancy acts in every state uh, that have the effect of greater surety and continuity from the tenants side of things. Now, how that's been done has been different in each state. Are those protections needed? Like, yeah potentially, um, but the perception, and this is once again, when we get into this, uh, this, this issue of expressing a view uh, that you have you've gathered from the conversations you've had with property owners and the like, uh, doesn't necessarily mean that you're pro-owner, but the perception from owners is that they have had a lot of their choice and a lot of their controls and a lot of their protections removed, uh, and that's impacted their experience. In addition to that, there's been extra costs added. So the cost of compliance and so forth has, has increased. Add to that things like kind of rollbacks and scalebacks in, in tax benefits around depreciation. State governments have obviously been having having their, uh, their go as well around different kind of 
property usage constraints and, and zoning uh, limitations and so forth. So there's definitely been a perception with property owners that their ability to kind of better control the asset that they own has, has been impacted by tenancy laws. Now, that gets us into the whole other ideological discussion about whether property uh, as an investment class is, is is morally corrupt and all of those sorts of things. Like that, that to me is a discussion for another day because that solution is such a long-term, decades-long pathway. Now, that's kind of where we talk about what is the relative situation right now. So I guess you can have a... You can have anyone can have an ideological view on whether property investors should provide rental properties for tenants who need to live in them. But the fact is that is the situation we have right now. So in Australia, where one third of the property, uh, one third of the population rent a property to live in, um, we are confronted with the scenario that 91% of those rental properties are provided by private investors. So whether that's right, whether that's wrong, it's just the reality now. In a situation where governments have actually been progressively rolling this back over the years, which is, which kind of adds a bit of a you know interesting perspective to the housing announcements lately about trying to be you know the provider and, and you know make an impact. That's actually, in many ways, a, a position that has been caused by various levels of government over the years. Because if you look at the um, the amount of tenants able to access property that's provided by governments or you know housing authorities that's actually halved since 1997. So state governments have quietly sold off 100,000 properties over the past you know couple of decades, which has drastically impacted on you know what's available from a supply point of view. But it's also moved us further towards the almost complete and entire dependency on the private investor. So. We're in a situation where almost every renter in the country is entirely dependent on a private investor, but we're also trying to demonise private investors at the same time. So this is, you know, this is two very confusing perspectives where on the one hand, we are almost entirely relying on private investors to buy a property to add to the rental pool for people to live in. But at the same time, we're saying, no, this shouldn't be an investment thing. And you know, governments have got to become more involved. Like to shift that paradigm takes generations, it takes decades. So that is not going to help any of, uh, you know, 116,000 homeless people right now, you know, the 163,000 people that are on a, a waiting list for a public housing property. So, you know, these are two very different sort of problems to solve and over, you know, vastly different timeframes. With vacancy rates being at historic lows and I guess with the backdrop of everything that you've just said as well, we know this puts a heck of a lot of pressure on PMs because they happen to be in the middle of the two parties we've just been discussing. You've got a lot of friends um, and colleagues and associates um, that are property managers. What sort of pressure are you seeing it put on them? Yeah, look, it's, I mean, it's an awful situation because there's a real issue around the cost to serve just related to leasing activities with property. So a property manager has a whole lot of other stuff that they need to do besides just simply the leasing of a property. But the leasing of a property has become such um, a labour-intensive exercise at the moment because of the amount of stakeholders involved and the desperation that they have. So unfortunately, a lot of this presents itself as 
an example of poor service, but a lot of the time people just cannot, like they just don't have the the actual physical capacity to properly serve everyone that's trying to find a home at the moment. Like it's actually impossible. You could do it every waking hour for the entire week and you still probably wouldn't get around to, to everyone to provide a level of service that you'd be comfortable with. So property managers are in an awful situation at the moment where for every property they have, there's just a massive amount of demand for it. Obviously only one successful applicant can get it, which means a whole ton of people miss out. Um, those people have got to be delivered bad news often over and over again, because they've got to continue to try and find a home. You know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of emotion. There's a lot of stress in that scenario and, you know, it's, it's taken its toll on, on everyone. So, Obviously, the stress level of a tenant who's currently living in their car in a park and can't find a property is immense. Um, the stress level of property managers trying to effectively deal with that is also immense. And, you know, after they've got through just all of those activities related to trying to service inquiries and trying to get people through properties and trying to process applications and trying to get people through, they've still got all of the rest of their job to do. So, you know, it's it's a really difficult position to be in. Mm. So if you were still leading a team of property managers as you used to do, what sort of things would you be doing right now to support them? Yeah, well, I think I'd be obviously putting a lot of focus on what the business is doing to service inquiries, service bookings and property viewings, and obviously the application processing. Um, but I'd really be making sure that we've got the appropriate level of of mental wellness uh, support for all the team members and also breaks are really important. So, you know, people need to take breaks. They need to have time off. They need to be able to reset. And this is, you know, where things like um, the unfortunate property management fixation with having an after-hours phone or a weekend phone really kind of impacts on these scenarios because people never get to switch off, you know, mentally and emotionally. So, you know, I guess from a business and operational perspective, I'm really looking at how we can handle large volumes of incoming inquiries effectively, how we can get large volumes of people to view property effectively, how we can process large volumes of applications effectively, but not losing sight of the fact that there's a real personal aspect to this. So the last thing that 19 unsuccessful applicants want to get is a text message going too bad. So, you know, how can we have a better, more effective conversation with those people who aren't successful and potentially start moving them onto other properties that we might have? Um, and, you know, outside of all of that, how am I going to support my team members? How am I going to make sure they're kind of relaxed? They're not getting themselves into, you know, a real spiral uh, and that they're taking sufficient time away from the business to reset and recharge and, and come back and, you know, give it the best they can. Yeah, well, I mean, this is on top of, I think, you know, already, I think when you and I met years ago, um, property manager churn was... Um, an issue even back then, you know, like I, I think the number was something around 80% of property managers would change jobs within a year or something like that. And I know that fluctuates from time to time. But um, given that this is an ongoing issue and as you've said, it's it's not something that's going to be solved overnight, how do you feel we could as leaders attract more people into the property management industry and, and make property management, I'm not going to say great again, <laughs> <laughs> but what what do we need to do to make it more attractive? Yeah, so property management's always been a high churn industry and I guess that presents in two kind of ways. So, you know, there's a tendency for people to move around between businesses within the industry, but then there's also people moving out of the industry. So I always look at how do we onboard, like what would you have to do in your business to successfully onboard someone 
without property management experience, but potentially with a great attitude and an excellent cultural fit, how could you get them up to speed in six or 12 months? And, you know, the the best large-scale businesses that I speak with have really good structured detailed programs, both in terms of um, technical skills, but also, you know, the soft skills and the interpersonal skills. And they also have a lot of support around uh, incoming team members so that you could potentially get uh, a new team member coming in and over a 12-month period becoming capable of managing, you know, quite a large portfolio with, uh, you know, with excellent customer service metrics and all of that type of stuff because of the, the structure and the content of the onboarding process and because of the support that's offered around from a, from a technological and from an administrative perspective to get people up to speed. So, you know, I think from a recruitment perspective, um, in a business if you have a scenario where you can recruit people that actually aren't necessarily directly experienced in property management, but you can get them up to speed and get great results out of them in a short period of time, that's kind of the secret sauce right now. Because if you are relying on someone that's coming in that's experienced to come in and be able to do the work, then those types of people, are <laughs> they've got options everywhere. So if your business is entirely dependent on being able to recruit them, invariably your wage prices are going to go through the roof. Um, which is going to obviously affect affect profitability and, and viability of your business moving forward. So I think the industry needs to get really serious about firstly looking after the people that you have and the talent that you have because retention is way better than recruitment, to be frank. So retain and really look after your people right now. Uh, if you've got to go down that recruitment process, then be really serious about what sort of impact and what sort of uh, impression you're going to make on people when they join your business and how you're going to support them through that first six months because that first six months is critical and portfolio churn is one of the biggest sources of complaint and um, and friction with both owners and tenants because tenants also don't want to have a revolving door of a property manager every three or four months because so much of the stuff that they've talked about just kind of goes out the door with that person so um, for the sanity of everyone yeah, stability. You can do marvelous things with a stable team. So, how are we going to do that? That's that's kind of that's the question. Yeah, I'm going to ask you a question that's kind of not on the program, but you just made me you just made me think of an article that you wrote for us a few years ago called, I think it was called Recruit, Automate, or Outsource, or something like that. And I'm sure that there's a lot of people now, you know, because recruitment is hard, unemployment's low. Um, lower than it's been for a while, although, you know, like I guess that's probably going to fluctuate over the next, you know, 12 months or so. But I'm sure that there's also a lot of people that are sort of thinking about their options for 2023, which could be, you know, automate, outsource or recruit. Can you give us a little bit of a rundown? Like have your thoughts changed any on when to use each of those things? Uh, I don't know whether they've changed. I think they've definitely evolved, but I think whether you're looking at well, outsourcing is, oh, I mean, it's a word that I've always kind of not liked because to me, outsourcing means that you're handing something off with no control over how that thing is done. There's there's offshoring and there's also onshore versions of that as well. So uh, an assistant that can work remotely from an administration capacity, they can be local, they can be Australian-based. There's lots of people that operate in that space or they can be offshore, you know. But whatever that assistance looks like, whether that be provided by a person or whether that be provided by a technology solution, 
I have the view that you don't want to digitize and automate the moments that really matter. So if it's a property manager, you've got the opportunity to have a really good interaction with a customer. That's that's the bit that you need to be doing in person. It would be a shame to not be able to differentiate your service by digitizing that type of scenario because that just basically creates a problem where if everyone is having a digital experience that's largely the same, it becomes a race to the bottom from a fee point of view. So that's where we get ourselves into the trap of potentially uh, being the, the intermediary that gets removed in, in the property management scenario. We don't want to do that. So whether it's outsourcing, whether it's offshoring, whatever you call all of that kind of remote administrative assistance, or whether it's a, a technology or a digital solution, it should be aiding and complementary to the person that provides the service so that they can spend more time in that high value space um, and not kind of replacing them. One last question on the current supply issue, like if you could see a best case scenario for the next 12 months, what would it be? Look, for the next 12 months, the given the lead-in time to all of the grand scale, you know, housing construction type things, like these are all years down the track and we have a problem right now. So if we have a problem to solve right now, the only way out of that is to encourage people that can buy a property to buy a property and make that available for rent. So we've seen a combination of factors here. Um, we've seen kind of fed up owners cashing out uh, and choosing to just make the most of what was a pretty buoyant sales market and go, that's it, I'm tapping out. Uh, we've also seen less people who could buy a property buying a property because of the, I guess, the, the attractiveness of properties investment has diminished. Um, so people who could invest in property are choosing other asset classes. Um, but we've also seen a scenario where it's been really widely reported that people have uh, suffered quite big losses off rent rolls over the last 12 or 18 months. So I think everyone kind of thinks it's just them, but the more people you talk to and the more you know coaching and training organisations that you speak to, um, the more you find that 20% losses off rent rolls has been pretty common uh, due to sale over the last 12 months. So... The point I would make about that is that 20% uh, of the losses of a rent roll to sale has had absolutely no impact on the amount of people looking for rental property. So that kind of serves to address what I would call is a bit of a myth that um, enabling more tenants to buy a property kind of solves a rental crisis because many tenants will never buy a property. Like this is just fact. Um, there are a proportion of tenants who are financially able and capable and placed and you know are out there looking and they will buy a home. But that is not everyone. Uh, there are so many tenants who will continue to be tenants for the rest of you know their existence, and you know for various reasons, trying to encourage uh, you know sale options to solve this crisis is not the way to go. So we need uh, we need to make property more attractive for people to buy, but we need to do that in a way that doesn't inflate um, the asking price. So you know for me, gearing has been a political punching bag for quite a while now, but I think incentivizing property in that way is better than just making money really cheap which basically just inflates the cost of property so you know i've had investment properties in the past that have been negatively geared and the thing that you've you're confronted with from an investor's point of view is still got to service that cost so you know every month that the expenses outstrip the income like you've got to actually find that money and then at the end of the year obviously you do your tax return of you know hopefully you get a little bit of money back which then you can reinvest into things like maintenance and improvements around the place but you know, if we talk about what we need right now in the next 12 months to solve the, the issue that we have right now, it's to encourage 
more people to buy a property to make it available for rent. So people that could, let's get them to buy one uh, because that's actually the only way that we're going to solve this, you know, in the short term. Thank goodness that, you know, Anastasia's land tax scheme didn't get up because that would have made the whole thing heaps worse. Yeah, that's right. Like everything that we do to demonize owners um, just makes them less likely to to want to invest in property, which compounds the problem. Like all of this stuff compounds the problem. So people can have the ideological view that property shouldn't be an investment and all of that type of stuff. But once again, it doesn't get us away from the reality that that is the current scenario. So whatever that is the current scenario, and that would take generations and decades to shift, let's solve the problem at hand. Yeah. Well, another another thing that would be quite counterproductive, I mean, I, again, depending on the side of the political fence you're sitting on, is the idea of rent control, which has been raised by the Greens lately. What are your views on that one? Uh, rent control and in, introducing further regulations in that space just... I mean, to be fair, it just will piss more owners off, which makes people more likely to sell their property, which means that there's one less property available for people to live in. You know, that's the cold, hard reality. So what's often missing in this argument is, you know, from an owner's point of view, just look at interest rates. They're double what they were six months ago. So, you know, if you had to pay $2,000 a month in the mortgage six months ago, you now have got to come up with $2,700 a month for the mortgage and top of your other costs. Like, it's increasingly more expensive to to actually own a property whether it's rented or not so when you're trying to cap the level of uh, investment return on that then you're basically making it less attractive for people to invest in property which gets us back onto this merry-go-round again of a why would i invest in property b if i if i currently have a property maybe i'll just sell it and i will put my money into a different form of investment now all of those things just compound the supply issue, which just creates the bigger problem. That's what uh, kind of boggles my mind about rent freeze as a solution to our current issue because it actually just makes it worse. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's move on to some um, less, well, I don't actually know. They're still serious. There's nothing that's not serious in property management these days. I was going to say some of your articles. <laughs> it's all serious. Well, it's I like to serious. think they're somewhat serious. I feel like I've had my Sandra Sully tone on for a lot of this podcast, but let's talk It'd about it. Nice to of... be talking about more uplifting things, but yeah, unfortunately, that's the that's the there's there's, there's trouble on a lot of fronts at the moment. It would. I I have this running joke that um, that she gets on at five o'clock and says good evening, and then tells you why it isn't. Yeah, but, um... <laughs> true. Good evening, or is it Sandra? Good evening. Yeah. yeah. No, it's not. So you've written a couple of articles for us and I just, um, the last one was quite interesting about control and consent. So property management has obviously changed a lot since you and I were kids. So talk talk us through that article and, and what the thinking was behind that one. Oh, look, I, t- I mean, it's just, it's intended to be thought provoking around the very, like, the reality of the fact that current regulation around payments is decades behind where payments actually are in 2022 and beyond. So for those that haven't read that piece, but the point I'm basically getting at is that basically everything in everyone's life has evolved. You know, digital payments are significantly more advanced and way different than they were even 10 years ago. But all of the regulation around payments in property management assume that trust accounting is both necessary and just the dumb thing. So it no longer is necessary for a, a real estate agent to specifically have a trust account to collect all of the money that comes in, pay all the bills and do all that type of stuff. Like you can have a scenario where tenants can pay their rent, 
owners can get their cleared funds instantly, bills can be paid, agencies can be paid their fees and commissions, like all of that can be done without paying money into a trust account and accounting to it from there. So there is a, just a whole range of different ways that the digital payments discussion can be sliced and diced, but we are all confronted with the scenario where from a regulatory perspective, it's all viewed through the same lens. So basically when you read through all of the, the trust accounting and payments regulations and, and acts, it, it basically assumes that all technology is basically doing the digital equivalent of how trust accounting used to be done manually in ledger books. And we've moved so far past that, that there's just, I guess, the, I would call it embarrassing reality, where from a compliance perspective, the regulators are constantly looking at digital solutions coming to market and trying to assess them through a set of parameters designed for one particular scenario, and they just don't fit. So I think the concept of collection in a trust account, it used to actually mean control because if you had to collection, if you collected all of that money, then you had absolute control over what happened to it after that. So it was perfectly appropriate for, for, for the time and the protections that consumers needed. But, you know, we have moved so far past that, that from a compliance and regulatory perspective to still be completely wed to that concept of money going to a trust account, where there's so many different ways that this whole payment scenario can be, can be engineered is it's kind of laughable so what you will have is the uncomfortable scenario for people where um, from a regulatory perspective they're trying to assess a solution through you know basically a set of criteria that were written decades ago and it's just it's just not it's like it's apples and it's not even apples and pears it's comparing apples with giraffes and you know people building solutions in this space are also limited because they have to kind of try and morph their solution to satisfy you know what sparse regulatory constraint there are from decades ago which just kind of uh, moves away from what you would do if you had a blank sheet to work with so to me it's collection is a completely redundant idea um, it needs to be about who can control the flow of funds um, and whether people consent to it throughout that journey. So if you've, if as an owner, you've given ongoing consent for a particular set of things to happen, whether it's maintenance payments, whether it's your fees to come out, then that's cool. But there's also opportunities to add one-off uh, scenarios for both owners and tenants to go, hey, do you want this money now? Or do you want to pay this now? Or do you want to pay your invoice this way? And, you know, digital consent for that to happen should be should be kind of sufficient. And if people are, doing that without getting digital consent, then equally, you know, that's that's something that needs to be the focus of regulation rather than this whole fixation with consent uh, around collection. People need to be thinking about the value that they add from a property management perspective because, you know, I think the industry has long had an issue around differentiation. The, the way to, uh, to increase revenues and profitability is to well and truly set yourself apart from someone that's providing a generic service. But I guess my point around collection is more about the fact that there's just like that is the old world you know collection as one function of let's let's not even call it collection let's just look at it as the financial side of property management like it it no longer occurs in a way that it did 30 years ago but all the framework assumes that it does so you know failure to evolve that and and legislation has a very important role in consumer protection and all of those things, but it also is equally uh, kind of toothless when it's designed for a scenario that's long since been moved past. So my primary concern right now is that 
regulation is so far behind where technology is. Unless we close that gap, then the whole function and purpose of regulation being around consumer protection and all those sorts of appropriate uh, business practices and so forth um, is is it's just a massive gap because it's nowhere near uh, what technology can currently do. Yeah, that's more or less what created Uber, isn't it? The ability to provide a service that wasn't in line with the current taxi regulations but was too good to shelve. Yeah, and I think it's interesting, the Uber example, because from my perspective as a consumer, more often than not, I've actually gone back to the One Three Cabs app now. So, you know, the cab industry has come up with its own version of what that original solution was. And what I've noticed over time is that the Uber service offering has actually declined. I live in the city and I take a lot of short trips and I find so often now that you know, I'll get dumped by six Uber drivers before I get frustrated, jump on the one three cabs app and, and get a taxi, which will actually turn up. So, you know, <laughs> Uber for its revolutionary thinking at the time has had all of the growth pains that many companies have where, you know, they've actually moved back to the pack and taxis have closed the gap now. So what are you writing about next issue for the summer issue? Uh, well, I'm going to talk more about the the onboarding piece. So how can you make most out of the opportunity you have with the team member that's just joined your organisation? So we want to talk about how to get people up to speed effectively, um, but also make them feel very supported and want to stay because that I've absolute firm believer that retention is better than recruitment, as I said earlier. So Recruitment is a reality of life, but if you don't have to do it as often because you're just getting up to speed really quickly and your people want to say and they love the environment you've created, then you know that's that's kind of a win for all of us, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I, I can't wait to read that one. Well, Brock, it's been fantastic unpacking some of these issues with you. And as I mentioned a little bit earlier, it's going to be Christmas soon, yeah. and the big fella in the red suit is um, is on his way. And one of my favourite questions to ask people around this time of the year is, if you could get him to deliver something to the industry, what would it be? I think the thing that we are confronted with right now is wellness and retention. So if Santa can deliver us anything right now, it would be something to relieve the stress of property managers make them feel more excited, pumped about their work uh, and preferably make them super chuffed and happy to come back in January 2023 and go around again. Yeah, what a great gift, Brock Fisher. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks, Sam. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Elevate podcast with thanks to connectnow.com.au. Don't forget to get access to all of Elite Agent's premium resources, including a detailed episode guide for this podcast. Visit joineliteagent.com.